0: If you claim to be justified before God through your faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith is not taking you into a life of holiness, then you might want to rethink the content of your faith. You may just believe in order to get a hall pass to heaven, but you have not believed Christ for the life he died to give you. Hello everyone, welcome to the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. Church Partnership Evangelism is working with pastors, leaders, and missionaries in countries around the world to direct them in raising up evangelists and disciple makers from within their own congregations. And God is blessing, and many are coming to Christ. Thanks for your prayers. To learn more about our ministries, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Today we begin taking up the great chapter of Romans 6. Here we learn right off the point from where our life in Christ begins. It begins in His death. It begins with us dying with Him. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Martin Lloyd-Jones had said that he didn't preach on the book of Romans until he felt that he understood Romans chapter 6. And it took a number of years until he felt like he had a grasp on what he thought was the most glorious chapter in the book of Romans, but that he didn't feel like he had a good knowledge of it. And when he finally felt that he gained a knowledge of Romans chapter 6, then he began preaching a series on Romans that lasted for 14 years, preaching on the book of Romans. But now we're just approaching this really wonderful chapter, and I have to say, that to some extent, this was my conviction as well. I wasn't going to approach Romans until I understood this passage. And it wasn't until, in my mind, but a few years ago, that I I, I finally felt like I I had a clear understanding of the promise and the truth that's here before us. I may be presuming upon myself and thinking that. There are things I know I'm not entirely understanding, but still, this is a glorious chapter. And it begins to unleash promise to us, not only of what God does for us in saving us and delivering us from the penalty of sin, but what God now does and works to save us from the power of sin. How His salvation continues to work itself out progressively through our lives. So as we're looking at this passage and we're having introduced this passage to us, we see that it begins with two questions that are being asked, and these Two questions are really being asked from two different vantage points. It's as if there's two different individuals or two different parties that are asking these questions. And the second question is really somewhat of a rhetorical answer to the first question. But there are two parties really that we might identify here. And the question that I want you to ask yourself as you're looking at this passage is which of these two questions are you asking? Which of these two questions commonly comes up in your own life. Which is the way in which you engage temptation and trials and difficulties? How do you calculate that? And what's the numbers that you run through your head as you work through and you calculate what your response is going to be? Is it the first question or is it the second question that's being asked here? Because, well, that's rather important. That's going to be rather telling about where you are and the state of your your life and the standing that you have or whether you have a standing or not in Jesus Christ. You'll remember that Paul is presenting the gospel to us in the book of Romans. His great intent is to make known to those that he's coming to the gospel that he's preached in all the other places in Europe and also the gospel that he shares he's wanting to share with them and minister to them and then through them the gospel that he wants to minister to those that they're in association with and so Paul has declared in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 in the very beginning of the passage he says that he's a slave or servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then in Romans 1 16 and 17 He declares that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written "The just shall live by faith. Just prior to that Paul has said that he's longing to come to these individuals that he might minister this gospel to them and through them bear fruit. See others come to Christ as well. As Paul writes his letter, what we've seen is that he's writing it in a certain style. Paul is, in a sense, writing it through a series of imagined conversations. You ever done that? You know, where you imagine the conversation you're going to have with an individual, or oftentimes we imagine it after the conversation took place, and it didn't go very well, right? And then you think, I should have said this, and I should have said that. Well, Paul is getting ahead of the game. He is already thinking and exploring how he's going to express these truths to individuals, and let me just suggest to you, by the way, this is a very productive way and valuable way to meditate in God's Word. Have conversations with yourself. Preach sermons to yourself. Think of your own objections and then find the answer in God's Word. Have conversations with other individuals. Imagine them and set them forward and put forward your arguments. Just make them and find your arguments and your responses from what God has revealed and what God has made known in His Word and you'll find it's good for you. It's a good way to think and process Paul is writing his letter in that manner. It's called a diatribe. It's this imagined conversation. And in this diatribe, he's not just speaking to one individual. On some occasions, it seems like Paul is addressing the idolater. On other occasions, Paul seems to be addressing more of the Greek moralist. On other occasions, he's pivoting and he's addressing the Jewish religionist legalist. And he's talking to them. And then on some occasions, he's turning back to address the church. And there in the church, he's... Both addressing at times, it seems the emphasis is on the Jew who is in the church—that's a believer—but still he's communicating to him through his Jewish vantage point of the law. But then on other times, there's also Greeks or Gentiles at the table, and he's turning, he's pivoting to address them and their place and their position, even though they don't have the law. And so here is this ongoing dialogue and conversation that he's having. But in all of it, Paul is seeking to press forward before them the message of the gospel and an application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's taking place in our passage and it will help us to understand this passage reading right here in light of that message and the light of that presentation of the gospel. In these two verses, there is a gospel that's been laid out. And so let's put the context for what we're reading now. And Paul has basically said and laid out the gospel something like this we are all sinners. We are all under the judgment of God. We have all in one way or another suppressed in unrighteousness what God is making known of Himself and the truth that God is revealing to Himself. And our unrighteousness reveals in some a pagan idolatry. But if you think that you're above the judgment that comes upon the idolatrous pagans, You're no better even if you're a moralistic Greek. And you're in no better position even if you're a legalistic and religious Jew. The fact is that all these things and all these strategies that you have do not remove from you the trajectory of sin that is taking you deeper and deeper into depravity and deeper and deeper under God's judgment. The fact is that God has even given a law to you Jews, but he's given that law to you only to make known and reveal to you the extent of your own sin. So that there's none righteous, no, not one. And misery and destruction is all our ways, and none of us truly seek to know or understand God. All of us before the law are guilty, and the whole world must be silent before God, recognizing their guilt. And as a result, there is no answer for the sinfulness in your life, and there's no answer for the judgment and death that's coming upon your life, in your effort, in your labors, in your moral activities, in your religious activities. There's answer only in one place and it's found in the atoning sacrifice that God in love has offered up to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not in your moral works. It's not in your labor. It's not in the things you've tried to do. You fail and you sin and there's an answer only in one place. The answer is found in the free gift that God gives you through grace and Jesus Christ coming and suffering in your place and dying for your sins even though you were a sinner and even though you were ungodly and even though you were even an enemy with God and under God's judgment. God loved you so much. And now we've come to a passage where Paul has demonstrated that in Adam, everyone has collapsed into this judgment and this condemnation and that it's universal and it is the condition of the whole world. And Paul says, however, this work that Jesus Christ has provided brings such an impact of grace and such an impact of life and benefit in the face of all that death that he has the power to and he will one day reverse the whole trajectory of the world and it'll bring a reign of complete righteousness over all of creation and if you can believe that God will do that for all of creation you can believe that he can do that for you you can be assured that regardless of where you find yourself regardless how broken your life is regardless of the sin in your life regardless of the things you've done wrong at this very moment you can trust in a savior who by grace will bring it in abounding fashion to forgive you and cleanse you and transform you now that sounds wonderful But you know what the religionist and the moralist thinks? Well, if he'll take anybody regardless of what they've done and he'll transform them in a moment, what was the good of us being so good? What was the good of us working so hard at this? Why did we try to be such good and moral people if it avails us nothing? If the law says if sin abounds so that grace may abound, why didn't we just sin more so that grace would abound more? And that's the response they've given. They don't like exactly what Paul has said here. They're not happy with the conclusion he's made. And so we come to that first question. Let's look at this first question again. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is basically getting ahead of the question. I know what you're thinking. And you're thinking, why don't we just continue on sin? Should we do that? Should we do that, he's saying? The gospel is being heard. It's being grappled with by this unbelieving party that Paul imagines himself speaking with. And they have a response. They say, if you say that we're saved by grace... And if you say that the whole purpose of the law is just to show us that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves, and that we're simply to believe in God's provision, if you say that the law was given not to only underscore the accounting of our sin so that it may highlight before us the benefits of a free salvation to be received by grace alone, then why don't we just keep on sinning all the more? That this grace and this free gift may be highlighted all the more. In fact, really, even if we're to believe in these things and we're to pitch ourselves towards these things, If the purpose of my being good has no benefit in my life, then why be good at all? Why don't I just continue to highlight God's saving power, having believed in his provision, by just continuing to go on sinning? That's the argument they're making. That's what's going through their head. Let's make some observations. What I want to do this morning is I want to make basically three observations about this first question that's asked, and then three observations about the question, the rhetorical question that's asked in verse 2. But let's look at this Question in verse one now, and let's make some observations. And here is the first observation. This question will always rise when you faithfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ with individuals. A gospel that is not of works, a gospel that is not of labor, a gospel that is not about you earning or deserving something, but a gospel that is an expression of something that is freely given to ungodly people, people that are not like God in any way and not seeking to be like God in any way and that is freely given to wretched sinners and freely given to those who are antagonists against God, enemies against God, it takes away a person's ability to say, I had a hand in my own saving." It takes away the ability of a person to say that in a sense, I worked it out, I did this, I made this decision, I chose this way, I made these determinations, I followed this principle and this rule and this law, and when you take away that ability for them to... And by the way, it doesn't matter on whatever you think the chart is of righteousness that you think it's you're needed to be saved, if you're excluding what God alone can do for you, if you think somehow you can measure up some way, you almost always think you're one step ahead of where the cutoff line is, right? It's, I might be bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. I might, you know, I might lie a lot, but I'm honest about my lies, right? Whatever it is, you think somehow you're just ahead of the game, and there is a self-righteousness that gathers around that. And when you say, hey, listen, God saves wretched sinners through nothing they can do of themselves, freely what God gives them, the person thinks, oh, well, wait, what about, what about these moral coins that I've been adding up that I think get me where I need to go? And they, they react to it. They don't like this suggestion. It's, it's an offense to their own self-righteousness. And what they'll do is they'll pivot on you and tell you that your gospel is encouraging lawlessness. May you never lose your regard for Christ and the primary importance of your individual delight in his fellowship. And may you share that delight with others. If you want to learn more about the ministries behind the Bread of Life radio program, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.